Good morning, class. Good to see you here today. We're in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. If you'll turn there with me, I think we've got some uh, exciting information for you um, that I will prepare you for the future and cause you to say, okay, I need to pray about all these people that are going to live at this point in history because you and I are going to be gone in the rapture of the church. So, But we need to be praying for people in the future. All right, I want us to uh, begin with a word of prayer, and we're going to get into this passage because there's so much there I want to deal with. I didn't quite finish last week with what I wanted to cover, so I'm going to go back a couple of verses in the chapter to deal with an issue that I think is a very practical one that overflows out of what we learn in the text as far as data and history is concerned. All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being a part of your family. And uh, we thank you for your word. I was thanking you this morning for this great, reliable, and, and understanding uh, word. Now, Lord, we know there are sections we don't understand, and... Um, Yet your spirit is teaching us and we're growing. And we pray that as we look at the text today, it'll be helpful to us as we pray for the believers in future days. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, class, I mentioned to you that in chapter 11, I had one item that I wanted to cover. And we came, uh, ran out of time and it just had to be that we come back to it today. I said I would, and I want to. I'm going to abbreviate it a little bit. But let's think through chapter 11 just for a second. Uh, when you look at the early verses, you're made familiar with the fact that uh, there are four kings that come out of the Grecian kingdom after Alexander the Great uh, dies in his 30s. And uh, we discover that there is tension. There's four different kingdoms that come out of the Grecian kingdom that he reigned over. And two of them are called the north and the south. Uh, one is Egypt and territory around it. Syria is the north and territory around it. And we find that when you go to the text, verse 5 through verse 9, we find that... Uh, the king of the south is aggressive in attacking on a regular basis the king of the north. Then when you get to verse 10 to verse 20, it is reversed. It is the northern king that is aggressive toward the southern king. And I told you that there's so much, there is so much historical data here that I don't even want to begin to deal with it. Uh, there is just so much. Now, in my college lecture notes, it's all listed. And if you go to a good commentary, you're going to find every single name and every person. There's a marriage alliance between the North and South, and the lady's name is Bernice. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Well, that section uh, we, we covered. And then we got into verse 21, where we are introduced to... Antiochus Epiphanes and his aggression toward the Holy Land and the Jews in particular. 
And as we close out that chapter, you'll note that uh, he says, for example, in, in, uh, in uh, verse 30 in the text midway, he had regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. In other words, he respected those who had rejected their Jewish religious heritage. Then verse uh, 31 says, and the forces from him will rise, uh, arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and then a third, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they four will set up an abomination of desolation. Now that's setting up the idol. Uh, and when we get to Book of Revelation, we find out that the real Antichrist sets up an idol, uh, and it is of the first beast in Revelation 13. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But he sets up an idol. Now, uh, when we come uh, to that section, then we are introduced in verse 32 to Jews that rebel against this aggression toward the Jewish people and the sanctuary worship in particular. And as a result, uh, we read in verse 32, by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength in action. And that introduces us to what we find in history is the Maccabean revolt. And it's uh, addressed in particular and Maccabees, 1 Maccabees in the first chapter. Well, he deals with that and in a very aggressive way. And as a result, we come to verse 35, and this is where I want to go this morning before we go to verse 36 and following. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Now, there's a very interesting observation. And if you think for a few minutes, child of God, you are aware, if you've studied your Bible, you are aware of the fact that misery can produce maturity. Difficulty will lead to development. And that's what's being described here. They're going through great difficulty, but they're being refined and purified as a result. Now, just for just a moment, I want you to hold your place here in Daniel chapter 11. And I want to look, I'm going to look at two passages, I think, that I think will introduce us to New Testament terminology that teach this same thing. The first one is Romans chapter 5. And it's the first few verses of Romans 5. If you'll turn there with me. Now hold your place in Daniel. I don't want to take time getting back to it. But notice in Romans chapter 5 what the Apostle Paul tells us about suffering. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt, we praise in, uh, in hope of the glory of God excited about the salvation, praising God for the salvation that we have. Notice in verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, our adversities, our miseries. My wife just had surgery on Wednesday. She's doing fine. 
But uh, we had to go through something that neither one of us really wanted to go through. And getting in the hospital and spending the night is no fun. And uh, you, uh, many of you understand that. But the problem that we have to deal with is God, who is sovereign, allows those kinds of things to happen to us. My oldest son called us last night, said, oh, don't want y'all to get upset, but there's a growth inside my ear, and they think it might be cancerous. Okay? God is sovereign. And when we go through difficulties, it's easy for us to sit here and say, we need to rejoice in those tribulations, but it's hard in real life, isn't it? And so we have to recognize that. And so the text is telling us, don't forget this. Look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and so on. Perseverance is that word, hupo no, to abide under. We need to learn how to abide under the circumstances of life. How do we do that? God brings circumstances of life our way. And over a period of time, we start learning how to deal with it if we respond properly. Amen? Now, one more. I don't want to spend a lot of time. But 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at it with me. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to see another passage that deals with exactly the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 5, and it's verse 10, child of God. Verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice what it says. Uh, Verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, God, the God of all grace, grace, God's help when you need it, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself do what? Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and settle you down so you can trust him. Amen? Now, that flows out. As soon as I read verse 35, my computer kicks in, and I think of all these New Testament passages that address the fact that difficulty leads to development. Misery leads to maturity. Amen? Now, that's what they experienced way back there, even under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, verse 36. Here we go. This is the section that is dealing with the king. Some of them call him the willful king. And as you look at it, you note as you study through the text and compare it to Antiochus Epiphanes, things are being said about this guy that can't apply to Antiochus Epiphanes. So everybody, down through the centuries, though we don't agree on a lot of things, basically everybody agrees this guy is different from the guy we've been looking at. It's the, it's the Antichrist, okay? So here we go. Notice verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself. Notice number one, he'll do what he wants. Uh, He will exalt himself above every god. He will speak three monstrous things against the God of gods. That's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he will prosper 
till indignation, the wrath of God, brings it to a halt. But in the meantime, he's going to be successful, and he's picking on God's people. And he's exalting himself as a, as a God himself. Now, notice when you go down to verse 37. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers, his pagan gods, or the desire of women. The desire of women, a lot of different interpretations, but basically... It's Tammuz, the worship of Tammuz. The women worship that particular god. It started in Syria, and it just spread all over, and it ended up, not only was it in uh, uh, the area where this uh, guy is functioning in Europe, but it is also uh, something that surfaces in Israel the women of Israel, Ezekiel 8, verse 14, the women crying after Tammuz. Okay, so that's another kind of worship. So he doesn't regard the God of his fathers. He, didn't do, he doesn't regard the God that the women worship, nor will he show regard to any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, that's the second time that's been brought up. Notice, when you go back to verse 36, he will exalt and magnify himself above every God. Then verse 38, he will not honor the God of, he will God honor the God of fortresses. He will magnify, verse 37, himself above all the other gods. Everybody with me? Now, the issue that we want to address today is... Uh, what he does. He is a guy that worships power. His God is power, military power. And he goes on to describe that in the text for us. But I want you to see uh, that as we look at the book of Daniel, for example, the Lord Jesus will say to us, when you see the abomination of desolation, it's mentioned three times in Daniel. We're going to cover all three of them. When you see the abomination of desolation, uh, flee. Okay? So all of, this, all of these things, the Lord Jesus is still looking for them to happen when he's ministering here on this earth. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened in our day, obviously. But there are three different passages that talk about abomination of desolation. I want you to see them, and I want you to see the implication that we draw. Point. We've already studied some of these. We're going to find it again in chapter 12, the last chapter, but we want to tie it all together. I, tell, I used to tell students when I was uh, preaching and teaching them how to preach, the one thing you've got to realize is you can deal with individual trees because they're very important to understanding what the forest is all about. But every once in a while, you've got to let your people see the forest. Okay? Uh, so we want to do that this morning with this, with, this, with this Antichrist. Now, notice, if you will, that he exalts himself. We see it in verse 36. We see it in verse 37. Now, Go with me back to the first mention of uh, the abomination of desolation. It's in chapter 9, 
verse 25. Chapter 9, verse 25. Notice we're going to go to verse 27. Skip over the rest of the paragraph. And he, that is, the prince of the people that destroy uh, Israel, Jerusalem, that is, the Romans, that prince that comes out of that fourth kingdom, the Antichrist, notice what it says. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Remember, this is the 70 weeks. 69 have already passed. We're looking forward to the 70th week uh, as far as the biblical history or, or prophecy is concerned. And he will make a covenant with many for one week. That's the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. In other words, this guy is going to cause great uh, destruction and desolation. And he's the one who promises Israel... For seven years, I promise I'm going to take care of you. And in the middle of that 70th week, three and a half years in, he breaks his promise to the nation of Israel. And we have this abomination of desolation. Now, he doesn't, at this point, he doesn't tell us what the main feature is when he talks about the abomination of desolation. All he says is that he will break the covenant and he will end the sacrifice in the temple. Abomination of desolation. But then I want you to go to a, a, a second passage. And it's in our text here in chapter 11. This is the second time abomination of desolation is mentioned. Remember, chapter 9, he ends the sacrifice, he breaks the covenant, but he doesn't tell us the main feature. Here it comes. When we talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, remember, he is a foreshadowing of what this Antichrist fourth kingdom Roman leader is going to do. Notice what it says in 1131. It says, and forces from him will arise and desecrate the, the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. Now, here it comes. And he will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, watch it. The abomination of desolation, the key feature is he sets up an idol in the temple, stops the sacrifices that the Jews have, and he set up his image. Now, I want you to go from there uh, to uh, chapter 12 and verse 11. There's the first and the second references to abomination. And it's in chapter 11 that we see that it's setting up the abomination of desolation, the idol in the temple. And when you get to 1211, you find the same thing. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, the abomination of desolation is what? Set up. There's your idol again. Okay? Now... That's the three different passages that talk about the abomination of desolation. Nine, he's going to stock the sacrifice. He's going to break the covenant. Chapter 11 with the Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the foreshadowing, what is he going to do? He's going to stop the sacrifices and set up an idol. Chapter 12, 
He is going to stop the sacrifices and set up an idol. Everybody with me? Now, as a result of that, when you go to Matthew, and I want you to write it down, Matthew 24 and verse 15, because we're not going to turn to it. The Lord Jesus says, I quoted it a minute ago, when you see the abomination of desolation, ready, standing in the holy place, run, okay? Set up, set up, standing in the temple. Everybody with me? There's the key feature, the worship of some other being than God in the Lord Jesus. Now, one more passage and we'll, we'll be able to get through this section. I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 13. Now, we're going to deal with this much more extensively uh, when we do Revelation next. But uh, 13, everybody with me? You there? Hold your place in Daniel because we're going to go back to it. Now, here is uh, the issue that is brought up with some degree of clarification for us. Just to give you a context, Revelation 13 introduces us to what is called the first beast and the second beast. The first beast is the political ruler, Antichrist. The second beast is his prophet. Now, I want you to notice, if you go to verse 11, and I saw another beast. He just described the first one, which is the political leader, a leader, Antichrist. And then I saw another beast, John says, coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke like a dragon. Notice that description. He looks like a lamb, but he's really a dragon, you know, deception. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast. In his presence. That's an interesting statement. He can do all the things and all the miraculous things that the first beast can when he's related and in the presence of the first. The powers in the first beast, the Antichrist. And he makes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. We'll talk about that. Notice that. Worship the first beast. Now look at uh, verse 14 and 15. He deceived those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which had given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image, watch it, here we go, an image of the beast, the first one, Antichrist. So in the temple, John tells us, the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to have this image of the first beast installed, set up, standing in the temple. Got it? Notice what it says. Uh, an image of this first beast, uh, of the beast, verse 14, who had the wound from a sword and has come to life. And there was given to him breath to the image of the beast, that uh, the image of the beast might even speak and cause many to, uh, and as many as do not worship the beast, to be killed. In other words, it's legislated. You will worship uh, this uh, beast image 
that represents the Antichrist, or you will die. Okay? Now, the point being, child of God, I don't want you to miss it, you have to go through all of those three passages, see that there is going to be an end to the sacrifice. Chapter 9 doesn't tell us any more other than he breaks his covenant with Israel. But in chapter 11, through Antiochus, we see uh, that the Antichrist does what? He sets up the abomination of desolation. And in this uh, passage, uh, we, uh, we find it in chapter 12 as well. He will set up the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, you better run. Okay? Now, that's the issue. Now, all of that I bring to your attention. Why? Because all it says in chapter 11, verse 36 and following, is that the Antichrist will do what? He will exalt and magnify himself. He says it twice. But he doesn't give us details. Why? Because we have some details on both ends of chapter 11. We find it in the Antiochus, and we find it later in chapter 12 when Daniel is closing out uh, his uh, revelation of the abomination of desolation. We're supposed to figure that out. Amen? And God wants us to know our Bibles well enough. Listen to me, child of God. He wants us to know our Bibles well enough that we can coordinate one passage with another passage. We interpret one scripture in the light of other scriptures. So what does he do here? He exalts and magnifies himself. What does that mean? Well, let's go to the rest of the context in this book. Then let's go to what Jesus said in Matthew. Then let's go to the Revelation. We'll see what it says there. Who is uh, the image representing? It's the Antichrist in the temple when the Antichrist is the world ruler. Everybody with me? And all we have in this chapter is he will exalt and magnify himself. You've got to get the rest of it by going to the rest of the text. Now, we go back to this section that is describing the Antichrist because it's going to tell us What's going to happen to him uh, in the days to come? I want to pick it up at verse 37. This is the fifth thing it says about uh, the Antichrist. He will show no regard for the guards of his fathers or the desired women, nor will he reg uh, uh, show regard for any other god. For he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor the God of fortresses. The God of military power. Notice what it says. Uh, and he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. What does that mean? How is he going to honor him when he's talking about magnifying himself? And his God is fortresses. And he's going to worship this God of fortresses with all of his precious stones. The answer is, he is going to pour all of the wealth and the plunder that he gets through all of his victories. He's going to turn around and enhance his military capability. Everybody with me? So he will honor 
this God of fortresses. And then in verse 39, he will make, take action against the strongest of the fortresses of the military powers and with the help of a foreign God. Now, that's a strange way to say it. I've looked in the Hebrew, and that's exactly how this is. Uh, you would wish it would say, the God. What? Previous reference God, the God of fortresses. Now, everybody basically draws the same conclusion, but everybody says, why did Daniel write it like that? And the point may be, we are missing something. But the bottom line is, we need to understand that he's talking about this God that he he worships. Then verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of forces, Uh, with the help of a foreign god, and he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over many and will parcel out land uh, uh, for a price. Now, remember we've already talked about this. How did Antiochus Epiphanes, who foreshadows, how did he come into being? Well, he killed his brother so he could be king, and then he deceives people, and then he bribes people. Well, that's exactly what we see here. The Antichrist is involved in bribing. He will, it says, those who acknowledge him, he will cause the rule over many. You work for me, you honor me, you follow me, you're going to be rewarded. I'm going to give you a leadership position in my empire. Everybody got it? Now, verse 40, at the end of time, we're coming to the end of all of this. The king of the south will collide with him, the Antichrist. And the king of the north will storm against him, the Antichrist, with chariots and horsemen and many ships. Now, here we have a coalition of the north and the south. Remember we were talking about the north is Syria, the south is Egypt. But by this time, these uh, kingdoms are expanded uh, so that uh, we understand that the prophetic Roman Empire is a worldwide empire. It covers the whole earth. In fact, in Revelation it says, every nation, every tongue, all the people are under the control of Antichrist. Okay? But there's some rebellion rebellion that starts to surface. And we talk about the king of the north and the king of the south that come in what we, in military terms, call a pincer uh, tactic. You attack from two different directions, north, south. Everybody with me? Now, I want to stop there. And I want to look at another passage of Scripture because there is some controversy over what is said here and what is said in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. I want you to turn to that passage with me. Hold your place in Daniel, but go with me to Ezekiel 38 and 39. You see, in uh, this passage and in two references in Daniel 11, when it's talking about Antichrist, The king of the north surfaces. He's a major player. Well, in Ezekiel 38, we have the king of the north as well. Very interesting information. And the question is, does 38 
and 39 describing the invasion of the king of the north into the Holy Land, and that's where north and south kings attack is in the Holy Land. Is it describing what the king of the north actually did as he is mentioned in chapter 11 of Daniel? Everybody with me? The answer seems to be no. It's a different battle. In other words, the king of the north attacks Israel earlier than the reference in Daniel 11. Now, let me show you why most people draw that conclusion. Look at verse 38 of Ezekiel. Notice what it says. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Ross, Mesha, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and uh, Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and so on. Now, class, here we have uh, an example of how God in his sovereignty allows a king to invade the Holy Land, and he's in absolute control, and the king doesn't even know it. Now, I want you to notice this interesting information here, and I don't want to spend too much time because we're not studying Ezekiel. But you will note it talks about the land of Gog and the prince of Rosh, who is over the land of Magog. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about what history tells us. For example, I think most of you who have done any study or been in the Sunday school class or maybe even in the pulpit, you've heard it, you talk about Josephus, the great historian from way back there in the early centuries. Well, he tells us about this land of Magog. They, the people that live there are called the Scythians. It's mentioned only one time by name, and that's in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, where it tells those people can get saved too. But it mentions them in uh, Colossians 3.11. What we know about the Scythians is that uh, they are barbarians, they live north of the Dead Sea and the Caspian Sea. So you're moving up north there, heading toward Russia area. And uh, they are nomads. They travel around. Now, here's some gory details. They never took a bath. I don't know how you get by with that. But it seemed like you would get sores or whatever. But that's what they say. They didn't bathe. And... Uh, and they used the scalps of people as their napkins. You want one even more gross? They drank the blood of their enemies, and they took their skulls and made bowls out of them for their food. That's the sentience, king of the north. The area described is Iran, it's interesting, Turkey, and the southern provinces of what is now called Russia. That's where they lived. Just telling you what history says. Now, with that in mind, 
note that this Rosh, uh, Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, they are all these Scythian people. Then notice he describes some more people. I'm just going to give you the names. It's such an interesting passage, and then we'll get back to our text. He talks about Persia in verse 5. They're part of this northern invasion. That's Iran today. Ethiopia, we know about that. And Put is Libya. And uh, Gomar is uh, uh, Aramea. Aramea, and it also Beth Togarma, Beth, house of Togarmar, Turkey, and that area of the world. From the remote parts of the north, they will come against Israel. Now, class, is that the same thing as what we're reading about? In chapter 11, the answer seems to be no. Why? Because the text goes on to say when they attack, they will do it when people are living in security. Look at the last verses of chapter uh, of verse eight. And then you skip down, you'll find it again. Living securely in verse 14. Well, I skipped one in verse 11. Living securely. So the bottom line is they attack when everything seems to be secure secure, and no big military invasions going on. Point. When you go back to chapter 11 of Daniel, there's all kinds of battles going on. That's what we're going to talk about. So most people conclude that the king of the north attacked in Ezekiel 38 is sometime in the first half of the tribulation when everything's cool. It probably happens close to the middle, but it's a separate invasion from what we have described here in uh, uh, chapter 11 in verse 40. Everybody with me? Now, we had that battle. Now we have a second one. This time, the king of the north and the king of the south get together, and they invade... Uh, and they bring uh, their uh, chariots and horses and many ships. Now, I want to make an observation. Some people say, whoa, maybe they, maybe we're reverting back to old-timey kinds of weapons. That could be if atomic warfare, for example, uh, and all these uh, missiles that are heat-related and all those kinds of things, they become obsolete when you have a world war with that kind of capability. So people might be moving back to this kind of weaponry. Or the other view that people hold is these are just using terms that describe military at that point in history. Everybody with me? We don't know what it is. Now, notice what it says. They will attack, they will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. Now, he attacks the, they attack the Holy Land, just like in Ezekiel uh, 38. They're attacking the Holy Land. And that's part of the Antichrist's property. He didn't like that. So he responds. Look at the latter part of verse 40. And he, 
will enter countries, plural, and overflow them. He'll run over them and pass through. Keeps on going. Victory, 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 victory. Till he finally, from Rome, comes and gets into the Holy Land. And we have a second campaign starting. The first one, the north and the south attack the Holy Land. Second one, the Antichrist comes and invades and liberates the uh, Holy Land. Now listen to me. It's not because he loved Jewish people. It's because they're messing with his territory. And it happens to be the Holy Land. Everybody with me? Now notice, he will also enter, here we go, the beautiful land. That's the Holy Land. And many countries will fall. He'll fight from there and defend his property. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the aforementioned sons of Ammon. Now, I don't know what that means. I've been studying a lot of years. I understand that they are protected because of the way they treated Israel in the past. That might be the answer, but I don't know why. It mentions it here. Then, so we have this invasion by the north and the south, pincer division uh, uh, tactic against Israel. The Antichrist comes from Europe, wherever he's staying. He invades the Holy Land and liberates it. And then notice, verse 42, the Antichrist invades North Africa. That's the king of the south. Then he will stretch out his hand against the other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. For he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt, Libyans and the Ethiopians that follow at his heels. Now, this is what I call uh, the, the attack on North Africa. Think about Egypt. Think about all those countries that are mentioned there on the northern edge of Africa. That's part of the southern kingdom. Everybody with me? Now, I want to make an observation. Why would the king of the north and the king of the south attack the Holy Land? For exactly the same reason why we have so many violent activities between Arabs and Israel. They want to do away with the Holy Land. Okay? And it's still going on here. So he attacks, attacks Egypt. Now, why? Is he in love with the Jewish people? No. They're messing with his territory as the world leader. So we have this north-south thing. We have the liberation of the nation of Israel. Then in verse 42, he will attack and invade uh, the confederacy of North Africa. And he will gain control over verse 33, uh, 43, with the treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt, Libya and Ethiopia will follow at his heels. Then here comes another campaign. But rumors from the east and from the north, there's the north again, third time, 38, 39, verse 40. Now in verse 44, the north really doesn't like Jews, Okay. Because he keeps coming. And the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath and destroy and annihilate many. 
He is the guy who worships military power, and he's got plenty of it to attack people who attacked his territory. Everybody with me? Now, notice, and our time is gone, he will go, uh, he will go forth, the latter part of verse 44, with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And then it says he'll pitch his tents, uh, the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas, Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, most people understand it to be. Uh, and this beautiful holy mountain, that's where he sets up camp as a result of all of these battles. Evidently, because he knows it's not over yet. And notice in the latter part of verse 45, yet, after all of those victories, he will come to his end and no one will help him. Wow. He magnifies himself as God, has a powerful army that allows him to control the whole world and defeat anyone who attacked his territory. But he finally is defeated. Amen? That's the end of that guy. Except when we get to Revelation, we find out about things that he has to deal with when God gets a hold of him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity of looking at your word and allowing us uh, uh, to understand by your spirit some of what we see here. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in light of the fact that you are bringing a climax to human history in, in this globe that in a way that will glorify you, you are in absolute control regardless of the circumstances we see around us. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name.